Hi, welcome to The Church Split. Today we are starting a new segment. Today we have a friend of mine named David Palman coming on with Faith Because of Reason. And I keep wanting to say Faith Because of Reasons. I don't know why. But anyway, he's going to be teaching a class on Reformed Arminianism. And that is just to go through here and teach what they teach and uh, to understand what they understand. And here's the thing. The whole point of this segment is to bring unity through truth, to show the fact that we all unite under Jesus Christ, but we can have diversity of thought in how some of these things might work. So this just shows the fact that we can be unified with diversity. And my whole goal with this channel has always been to be educational and to try to bring unity through truth, uniting a divided body to allow us to be able to have these difficult conversations that we normally would not have. So anyway, please give David Palman your full attention. And if you have any questions, go ahead and put them in below. I'm going to leave all his, his information in the description of this video as well. And he's going to teach, I think, three different uh, parts to this, and I already have reached out to a Calvinist friend to do the same, and I'm going to have a few other friends on here to just kind of teach us some basic doctrines, so that way, if ever I speak about where I disagree with somebody, I can't be accused of straw manning, uh, because I would hate to do that, honestly. We want to represent each other well, because we're all Christians, and we're all brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ. So anyway, thank you all for watching, and take care. First, let me just thank, thank everyone who is a part of setting this up, and to everyone taking the time to listen. Uh, I am a lover of theology and particularly of soteriology, so I am definitely excited to talk about Calvinism and Arminianism, and especially Reformed Arminianism. Now, I'm acutely aware that the term Reformed Arminianism probably sounds like a, a flat contradiction to many of you, uh, and this would be due to the unfortunate reality that Reformed has almost become um, synonymous with Calvinism. However, that's a misnomer. There are several non-Calvinist theologies which also have their roots in the Reformation and are therefore Reformed. Uh, Lutheranism would be one example, and Arminianism would be another. So, you know, why bother labeling your theology as Reformed Arminianism? Why not just call it Arminianism? Well, uh, the reason is that we are trying to distinguish ourselves from our Wesleyan Arminian brothers. Uh, and while I have great love and respect for Wesleyans, uh, I do disagree with them on several issues. So, Reformed Arminianism, you could just say it's Arminius's Arminianism. And I'll explain how Reformed Arminianism differs from Wesleyan Arminianism when appropriate uh, throughout this talk. Uh, and as will become clear, we are actually closer to the Calvinists on some issues than we are to the Wesleyans. Uh, so let's go with uh, the tulips versus the facts, uh, is what, um, what we call it over in the Society of Evangelical Arminians. Uh, Calvinism as a soteriological system can be summed up in five famous points, uh, spelling the acronym TULIP. T stands for total depravity, U for unconditional election, L for limited atonement, I for irresistible grace, and P for perseverance of the saints. Uh, my acronym for Arminianism uh, stands in contrast to TULIP, and it spells the word FACTS. F stands for Freed to Believe. A stands for Atonement for All. C stands for Conditional Election. T stands for Total Depravity. And S stands for Security in Christ. Now, these acronyms do not exactly correspond to one another, so I'm going to follow the TULIP structure throughout this talk uh, when contrasting TULIPs with FACTS. Uh, unfortunately, you know, the, the means of facts is just, it's going to be out of order. Well, hopefully with the acronym, that'll make it easier to remember. So first, total depravity. Uh, we have this issue, uh, well, 
this would be one point that Calvinists and Arminians agree on. Uh, that would be the one point that's the same in both Tulip and Facts. And according to this doctrine, man is so spiritually dead and so in bondage to sin that he actually cannot respond to God in faith. And it's important to note that total depravity does not mean that man is as depraved as he possibly can be. Rather, the word total simply refers to the fact that all areas have been affected by sin. So this doctrine does not necessarily deny that man has a free will, but total depravity uh, at least precludes man from using that free will to be saved unless God acts first. Sometimes Calvinists will try to argue that unconditional election follows logically from total depravity. They argue that if man cannot be saved without God doing something first, then it follows that God has to choose who will believe. However, this is not correct. Uh, it commits the fallacy of a false dichotomy. There's another possibility, namely that God can enable fallen man to believe in such a way that he is either free to say yes or no. This is what Arminians believe God does, and this would be referred to as the doctrine of prevenient grace. Now, Wesleyan Arminians see prevenient grace as something that's more or less general and permanent. However, we in the Reformed Arminian camp, uh, we believe that prevenient grace is something that God dispenses to particular individuals at particular times. But God does enable all men to believe uh, at some point, it's just not once you're enabled, it's not necessarily permanent. So you'd be enabled for a time. And that's, that's the reformed Arminian view on that. Now, uh, Calvinists will object that the doctrine of prevenient grace is not biblical. However, this is just not so. I'll present just three verses in support of the doctrine here, although certainly many more could be marshaled. Uh, John 1.9 identifies Jesus as the true light who enlightens everyone. John 12, 32, Jesus says, When uh, I am lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. Romans 2, 4, uh, describe, well, it says that God gives men mercy and grace and patience, which is intended to lead them to repentance. But I think this verse is particularly significant uh, since the people are actually said to be despising this grace in that verse. So, prevenient grace seems to me to be a solidly biblical doctrine. God enables all men to believe in Christ and be saved. Thus, total depravity does not entail unconditional election, but that is the one point that the Calvinists and the Arminian can agree on, is that we got that shared anthropology there. So, unconditional versus conditional election. Calvinists believe that election is unconditional, and they believe that from among all humanity, God has predetermined uh, a limited number of human beings to be saved. And this means that out of all the people who ever lived or will live, the decision for which individuals will be saved has already been made and can't be altered. Uh, as R.C. Sproul says, God has chosen to intervene in the lives of some people and bring them to save, uh, saving faith, and has chosen not to do that for other people. From all eternity, without any prior view of our human behavior, God has chosen some unto election and others unto reprobation. The basis for God's choice does not rest in man, but solely in the good pleasure of the divine will. Now, Arminians dispute the doctrine of unconditional election. The idea that God does not want all to be saved is, in our view, manifestly unbiblical. Instead, uh, we would hold to conditional election, which is the belief that God chooses to save those who believe. In this way, faith then becomes a condition for election. 
Now, it does need to be stressed here that Arminians do not believe that faith is a work that merits or earns salvation or in any way obligates God to save a sinner. Calvinists will sometimes argue that if salvation, or, or rather election, is conditional on faith, then this makes salvation by works. Uh, but Jack Cottrell responds to that criticism by saying, This kind of objection to conditional election overlooks one of the most basic principles in the system of grace, namely that faith and works are qualitatively different. Grace is consistent with faith as a condition, but not with works as a condition. Uh, for by grace you have been saved through faith, but not as a result of works. That would be Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Now, in these passages, Paul clearly shows that faith is not in the same category of works. They are qualitatively distinct. Arminians differ on how exactly election works. Some Arminians believe that election is based on God's foreknowledge of who would freely believe. And then others, like myself, see election as corporate. And according to a corporate view of election, God chose Christ as a covenant head before the foundation of the world, uh, and then anyone who believes in him is incorporated into Christ and is therefore chosen by virtue of their association with him. So we would read Ephesians 1.4, right? He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. We would read that verse as saying that God chose us because of our union with Christ when he chose Christ before the foundation of the world. Thus, election is pre-temporal temporal, but it is not of specific sinners until they believe on the corporate election view. So let's look at some proof texts for unconditional election. Uh, obviously, I can't address all of them here, but um, let, let's hit some of the most, um, the ones that come up a lot. Uh, Romans 9, of course, that's the big proof passage for the doctrine. And in this chapter, Paul is defending the doctrine of justification by faith. He is arguing that God's promise to national Israel has not failed. Jews expected to be saved by virtue of their descent from Abraham and their keeping of the law. Paul sharply corrects this notion. Salvation is not by ancestry, but rather by faith. The reference to Jacob being chosen over Esau before either had done anything good or bad demonstrates that election is not based on works. However, it does not strictly demonstrate that election is unconditional. Moreover, the reference to it not being him or not being of him who wills in 9:16 is a reference to the ground of election rather than to the rather than the application of election to the individual. Uh, we all agree that the ground of election does not depend on him who wills, but uh, you know, in, in order to establish that that rules out uh, a free will choice on the part of man, the Calvinist would have to demonstrate from the preceding context that uh, some way that election is unconditional and individual. And if he hasn't met that burden of proof, then to try to use 916 to prove that, uh, that would beg the question. Now, likewise, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart was an act of judgment on Pharaoh for his sins. Uh, and the hardening of Israel that Pharaoh typifies is in judgment for their sins. It really has nothing to do with unconditional election. Moreover, notice that the purpose of the hardening is to send the gospel to the Gentiles, as Paul clearly says in chapter 11. The reference to the vessels of wrath and mercy are references to corporate categories. As Paul makes clear in Ephesians 2, everyone is a vessel of wrath prior to faith. Moreover, notice that Paul says that God endures the vessels of wrath with much patience, which according to Romans 2, as we saw, is intended to lead these vessels to repentance. Now that would be kind of senseless if election is unconditional, right? Uh, and then finally, the election of... Um, 
the vessels of wrath and mercy, uh, they're said to be prepared for their respective ends, one to glory and one to destruction. They're said to be prepared in different voices in Greek. So uh, we would have the, the vessels prepared for uh, glory that would be in the active voice, whereas it's passive voice where it's saying that they uh, are prepared for destruction. And that's interesting because that's not what we would expect to read on an unconditional election. We would expect them to be prepared both in the active voice. Uh, again, the contrast doesn't make sense on unconditional election. Now, Calvinists like to point to the various objections raised throughout Romans 9, right? Uh, well, you know, is there injustice with God? And, you know, well, why did you make me this way? Who can resist his will? But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Uh, and I think the reason they like these objections uh, in the chapter is because these are the same objections that get thrown against Calvinism. However, these objections are to God choosing to make faith the condition for election rather than descent from Abraham. Uh, their objections to God hardening the Israelites due to their unbelief. The Calvinist interpretation, then I would say, ignores that historical context. And once this is understood, Romans 9 seems to me fully compatible with Arminianism. John 6, that would be another favorite proof passage for unconditional election, right? We have Jesus say, all that the Father gives me will come to me, right? John 6, 37. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, John 6, 44. Calvinists understand these to be references to those unconditionally chosen for salvation. However, there's actually no reason to suppose that those given and drawn are unconditionally given or drawn. True, faith in Christ can't be the condition since these people are given and drawn to Christ so that they may believe, but that doesn't mean that there aren't other conditions that uh, would have to be fulfilled. Uh, and I believe that those who are given and drawn are the faithful Jews who are God's children under the Old Covenant and who are therefore prepared to believe on Christ by their own willful obedience to the law of God. Because of their responsiveness to God's prior revelation, they were being given to Christ and drawn by the Father. The context of the Gospel of John uh, supports this thesis. Uh, consider these statements, John 5, 46-47. Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So it's those who believed Moses. Those are the ones who are given to Christ. See, we see that, that uh, pre-salvific condition that's there. Uh, John 3, 20 through 21. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light, uh, for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Again, it's those who follow the truth. These are the ones who are being drawn to Christ, who is the light. John 6, 45, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So the Gospel of John presents no reason to think that God was only drawing certain individuals uh, based on some pre-temporal pre election that was unconditional on the part of God. Uh, what we see is conditions throughout the Gospel of John that explain to us precisely why some individuals are drawn and others are not. And the responsibility is uh, laid squarely on the shoulders of the person and how they have responded to God's revelation. Here's another one. Acts 13.48 speaks of Gentiles who had been appointed to eternal life. Now, Calvinists have been quick to see evidence for unconditional election here. 
the verb translated as appointed is tetagmenoi, uh, and it has a wide range of meanings both within and outside of the New Testament. The word's most basic meaning is to arrange, however that would be a kind of awkward translation, right? As many as were arranged to eternal life believed. That would kind of be strange, so most translators haven't gone with that. Uh, but according to the analytical lexicon of the Greek New Testament, the verb may appropriately be translated as disposed in this verse. Other possibilities would be positioned, set, or lined. So grammatically, either appointed or something like disposed is possible. The question then would be, which reading does the context support? Uh, the contextual arguments in favor of translating the word as disposed are compelling. Consider for a moment what is meant by a disposition. The word is defined as a prevailing tendency, mood, or inclination. A disposition includes several distinct elements. These include a preparedness and a desire. We might describe someone who is disposed as being both ready and willing. Acts 13 presents both of those elements. In verse 44, we see that there's in this intense curiosity on the part of the Gentiles as the whole city is said to have come, or almost the whole city, is said to come up for the purpose of hearing the words of Paul and Barnabas. Furthermore, verse 48 plainly says that when Paul offered the gospel to the Gentiles, they were pleased and they rejoiced and they, played, they praised God. This is evidence that the Gentiles already desired eternal life. So given these facts, it seems evident that some of the Gentiles in Paul's audience were certainly disposed towards eternal life. Uh, and so, you know, if that is the case, then uh, obviously not all of them would have been. Uh, you know, not everyone would be prepared to believe at that time. But uh, only as many who had been disposed to eternal life, these would have been the ones that believed. Uh, so we see that they wanted eternal life, but they did not know it was available to them until Paul offered it to them in verse 46. Uh, so thus contextually, the translation of Tetagmenoi as disposed would make some sense in this context. Certainly more passages could be examined, but these are probably the most common texts used to support unconditional election. Against unconditional election, let us just consider two passages. Uh, more briefly, these passages express that God wants all men to be saved and therefore provides uh, evidence against the idea that he has only chosen some men to be saved. Uh, first one would be 2 Peter 3.9, which says that God is patient uh, towards us, not willing that any should perish but wants all to come to repentance. Now, Calvinists will try to argue that this is simply a reference to the elect, right? And that God does not want any of the elect to perish. However, in context, Peter is explaining why God is delaying judgment on the world. God is allowing men an opportunity to repent. But according to Calvinism, regeneration precedes faith. So once God has regenerated a sinner, they cannot fail to come to faith in Christ. But under this assumption, why should there be the delay? What is God waiting for? He could simply regenerate the elect, and they would inevitably believe, and then the judgment would fall without delay. The Calvinist interpretation essentially ends up with God waiting on himself to do something. So the second verse uh, I would consider is 1 Timothy 2.4, and the verse says that God wants all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, Calvinists will try to argue that this means Jews and Gentiles, but there's kind of two problems with that. First, the term all men is used in verse 1, and Paul specifies that this includes kings and those in authority. 
Now, those are specific individuals, so this suggests that Paul is thinking of individual people when he says all men. He's not thinking of races of people. Moreover, in verse 1, Paul says that prayers are to be made for all men. Now, according to Calvinists, we can't actually know who is elect and who isn't. So if all men was a reference to the elect from among Jews and Gentiles, how could prayers be made for them? You can't pray for someone if you don't know who they are. Thus, this verse must be a reference to all men without exception. All right, let's look at uh, limited versus general atonement here. Calvinists will affirm that the atonement is limited, uh, and that would be closely, re closely related to the doctrine of unconditional election. Uh, it says that on the cross, Christ only suffered to save those that God had elected to salvation. Provision is not made for those God has not chosen to save. Or, as David Steele and Curtis Thomas would put it, mainline Calvinism has consistently maintained that Christ's redeeming was definite in design and accomplishment, that it was intended to render complete satisfaction for certain specified sinners, and it actually secured salvation for these individuals and for no one else. Now, Arminians strongly dispute the Calvinist claim that Christ only died for a select few. Arminians hold to a general atonement. However, and unfortunately, this doctrine is often poorly articulated and misunderstood. Calvinists sometimes object that if Christ died for all, then all must be saved. Uh, they'll object that Arminians like me believe that Jesus atoned for the sins of people who are ultimately cast into hell and punished for their sins again. But objections of this nature stem from a failure to grasp what Arminians mean by a general atonement. Arminians don't believe that Jesus was actually atoning for sins on the cross. Rather, they believe that Jesus made um, atonement possible on the cross for everyone. So it's, it's a provisionary atonement. Uh, but atonement wouldn't be applied to anyone until they believe. Or, as Arminian theologian Robert Piccarelli explains, the Arminian view is that Christ died to uh, provide salvation for all, a provision that is only effective, only effective when applied to those who believe. Now, Wesleyan Arminians tend to favor a governmental theory of the atonement. However, uh, reformed Arminians like me affirm a penal substitutionary theory of the, of the atonement along with the Calvinists. So in that sense, we're closer to the Calvinists. Calvinists sometimes argue that, you know, a penal substitution entails limited atonement. Uh, but I, I think that that's false. There's no reason that Christ can't, make, uh, can't pay for sins and then never have that payment applied. I, there's not any contradiction in that. So, in support of limited atonement, Calvinists will sometimes point to texts which speak of a specific group of people being atoned for, right? Jesus says that he gives his life for his sheep, for his friends, for, for the church. Uh, so, do such texts imply that the atonement is limited? Well, unfortunately for those seeking to establish the doctrine with such texts, these verses are missing an important word, only. It simply does not follow from the fact that Jesus says that he died for his sheep, that he therefore only died for them. Even Calvinist Robert Peterson and Michael Williams in their book Why I'm Not an Arminian acknowledge that these sorts of arguments for limited atonement are weak. Quote, Calvinists have not always argued well for limited atonement. For example, Calvinists have adduced passages of scripture that say Christ died for the church, the sheep, and others as evidence for limited atonement. But this line of reasoning is not persuasive. It only stands to reason that scripture, when talking about Christ's sheep or his church, would say Christ died for them. 
That does not mean he did not die for others. So let's turn our attention to the strong biblical evidence in favor of a general atonement. First, let's examine Hebrews 2.9. The verse reads, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste of death for every man. It seems evident enough that if Jesus tasted death for every man, then the atonement is not limited to a select few. 1 Timothy 2.6 says that Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all. 1 Timothy 4.10 says, We have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. This verse is interesting because it specifically makes a distinction between those who believe and all men. So this means that uh, you, know, you can't say, oh, well, all means all without distinction here. 1 John 2.2 uh, the verse reads, And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. It is truly difficult to imagine how much more explicit scripture could be than that this than the atonement is for all. Calvinists have tried to mitigate the force of this verse by arguing that whole world here means something like the elect spread throughout the world. Now, in the first place, there are really no examples in the whole New Testament or the Bible where you know, uh, the term whole world, it can be limited to just the elect. It can be limited in certain contexts, but never to just the elect. We, we have no examples of that. And then second, more importantly, Calvinists would have to do better than appeal to that as a possible meaning. They would need to actually demonstrate exegetically that that's the best understanding of the term here. But unfortunately, the evidence is against them here. 1 John, although a pretty short book, contains a whopping 23 uses of the word world, and none of them means just the elect. Uh, and as my friend Justin Gravatt notes in his excellent paper on this, if the same wording connotes something similar in nearly two dozen cases, it would be exceedingly peculiar, if not outright absurd, to suggest that the author uses that same wording in an entirely different way just one time without significant evidence proving this. But even more striking, uh, the exact term, whole world, is used in 1 John 5.19. And the verse reads, We know that we are of God, and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Now, no one argues that the term whole world there means just the elect. Uh, furthermore, throughout 1 John, there's this contrast uh, that's being drawn between believers and the world. Uh, so the world is unbelievers in 1 John. Uh, this gives us all the more reason to think that the phrase, not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world, is in keeping with this line of thought or this basic theme. Let me add one further piece of evidence for general atonement. Second Peter 2 Peter 2.1, uh, speaking of false prophets, it says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as, there, uh, just as there will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Peter affirms both that the false teachers were bought by Christ and that they would be destroyed. Clearly, then, Peter does not believe that everyone who Christ died for will be saved. This provides powerful support for general atonement. Irresistible grace versus pervenient grace. Calvinists will also affirm irresistible grace, and according to Calvinists, this means this is the means by which God draws the chosen ones to himself. 
Calvinists do not mean that God forces people against their will. That's, that's an important point to make. Uh, rather, they believe that God changes the will of man uh, in, in his elect in such a way that they cannot fail to come to Christ. Calvinists believe that repentance and faith are gifts that God bestows upon the elect. God gives man a new nature and the desire to willfully and joyfully repent and believe. Key to this is the idea that God makes a person alive by a work of regeneration before the person believes. Now, Arminians also dispute the idea that grace is irresistible. Arminians will make a distinction between saving grace and prevenient grace, which is by definition grace that goes before salvation. Prevenient grace draws sinners to salvation, but it is not so strong that they cannot reject it. Now, there's really only one text that Calvinists can appeal to in support of the idea that regeneration precedes faith. And this would be 1 John 5, 1, which says that everyone who believes has been born of God. Calvinists take the word believes here to be a reference to conversion. And since the one who believes is already born of God, they reason that the new birth must come before faith. However, this interpretation ignores a major theme of 1 John, namely assurance. Uh, specifically assurance of salvation. John is giving his readers a test so that they can know that they are saved. They can know that they have been born again if they are presently believing in Christ. And it is present tense in the Greek. Uh, scripture is clear that the new birth is done in response to faith. John 1.12, as many as received him were given the right to become the children of God. John 20.31 says that... Uh, through believing, you can have life through the name of Christ. Uh, and it's instrumental, so faith is instrumental in receiving life. Uh, John 6.52, this one's a particularly difficult one. Uh, it says that unless you believe in Christ, you have no life in you whatsoever. Thus, regeneration cannot precede faith from a scriptural perspective. Unconditional election, or sorry, unconditional security, Eternal security versus conditional security. Uh, Calvinists would affirm what they call perseverance of the saints. Those whom God has elected for salvation cannot fail uh, to continue in faith because the Holy Spirit continues to work in the lives of those God has chosen. Those who fall away were never truly saved. This doctrine is sometimes known as eternal security. It should be noted that plenty of non-Calvinists also adopt this doctrine. However, it is part of the classical Calvinist soteriology, their doctrine of salvation. Uh, now, Calvinists offer several biblical passages in support of this doctrine. Uh, however, most of them really fall apart under scrutiny. For example, John 6, 37 and 39. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. Okay, but... You know, there's a difference between leaving and not being cast out, right? Uh, the coming there is believing, so you have to be believing. Uh, the one who is believing, he won't cast out. That's what the verse is saying. Uh, but apostasy, by definition, involves a cessation of belief. Uh, or 639. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all he has given to me, I lose nothing but raise it up at the last day. Well, you know, this does not guarantee that people can't turn away and ultimately be lost. All verse 39 states is that God doesn't want anyone to be lost. But uh, as we saw before, God wants all people to be saved. 
but that's not going to happen. So just because God doesn't want anyone to be lost, it doesn't follow that no one will be. In fact, John 17 is significant because we get the same sort of language that we get in John 6 about the Father giving people to Jesus and whether or not Jesus can lose them. Uh, and what Jesus says in John 17, 12 is that, uh, speaking to the Father, you gave them to me and they have kept your word. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition. So it's evident from verse 12 that at least one who was given to Christ was lost. Similarly, John 10, 27-29 says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Once again, the words are all present actives here and imply continuous action. The verse could very, you know, accurately be rendered this way. My sheep are hearing my voice, and I am knowing them, and they are following me, and I am giving them eternal life. This obviously implies that if his sheep were to stop hearing his voice and stop following him, then they would stop receiving eternal life. The reference to nothing being able to take them out of God's hand uh, would be a reference to anything external. It's a taking out. It comes from something, a third party. Uh, but it does not preclude that the person themselves could leave. And even if a person does think that, it precludes a person's own unbelief. It certainly does not preclude God himself taking a person out of his hand if they stop believing. The final passage from the Gospel of John that we'll consider would be John 4.14. The verse reads, Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. It is argued that if those who drink from Christ never thirst again, then it must not be possible for salvation to be lost. Now, the first thing that has to be firmly grasped is that drink is an aorist. Uh, that's, a, that's a Greek tense. And in aorist uh, tense there, they frequently express a continuous action extended over a period of time. Now, nothing in the context of John 4 would require that we read this as a once-for-all action as opposed to a continuous action. So the grammar of John 4.14, you know, it, it can go either way. We could think of the drinking here as a point action, or it could be a continuous action. We just, it's not clear from that verse. So, to, under, to, better, to get a better idea of how we should understand that, we'll have to see how the word is used elsewhere in the Gospel of John. Uh, so consider Jesus' words in John 7, 37. Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Now the word for drink here is pinedo, which is an extended or prolonged version of the Greek word pio. Uh, and since it's also an aorist imperative, it's different than a present imperative. Uh, and the language here would only permit one interpretation, namely that Jesus is referring to continuous language. So, although drink in John 4.14 uh, could be either punctiliar or durative, in John 7.37, drink has to be this continuous action. Uh, and so, if we, you know, think that Jesus is referring to the same thing, and he is, because in both cases that's a reference to believing, 
it becomes evident that in John 4.14, he's saying that those who are continuously drinking of him will never thirst again, that Jesus will satisfy, and that's the point of the verse. Romans 8, 38-39, very common proof text for eternal security. The verse says, For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, it's argued that if nothing can separate us from the love of God, then this must include our own lack of faith. Now, given the context of this passage, Paul seems to be saying that God's chosen people are safe from external threats, right? He's asking rhetorical questions such as, who will bring a charge against God's elect? Who is the one who condemns? Who will separate us from the love of God? That's Romans 8, 33-35. All of those statements seem geared towards external factors rather than the believer himself. So I think it's safe to say that the believer is excluded from what Paul is discussing. Uh, but even if you think that the believer is included in that, since you know, technically the believer is a created thing, uh, Paul adds the qualifier that it's no created thing that's able to separate us from the love of God. Uh, so certainly God himself is able to separate someone from his love if they stop believing in Christ. Ephesians 1, 13-14, uh, 4.30, and 2 Corinthians 1.22 all speak of being sealed by the Spirit of God. Ephesians 4.30 is probably the strongest one of these texts. Uh, it says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now, let me first state that sealing in the New Testament has much more to do with being marked or identified than it does with being secure. Uh, Paul makes that very clear in Romans 1, that when you're sealed by the Spirit, uh, you're sealed with a mark. So this is about being identified with Christ, not so much about being secure, uh, but even, you know, there's a certain degree of security that comes with that. And so the second point I would want to make is that uh, Scripture does not consider seals to be unbreakable. Consider uh, Romans 4.11. Speaking of Abraham, Paul says, And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them. So what we see here is that those who are circumcised also received a seal. However, uh, being a circumcised Jew was no proof of security. So clearly then in the New Testament, this language of sealing is, is not about security, certainly not in any unconditional sense. Philippians 1.6, undoubtedly one of the most common proof texts for eternal security. The verse reads, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. Proponents of eternal security have a really bad habit of only quoting the last half of this verse as though it were an unconditional guarantee for all. Uh, however, the verse um, is actually nothing more than an expression of confidence that the good work that, uh, that had been started would continue. Uh, it's certainly not an unconditional promise. Paul just says that he's confident this will happen. And what's the basis of Paul's confidence? Well, this verse is part of the introduction of Paul's letter to specific people that he knows. Uh, it seems that the basis of his certainty, or his confidence, is knowledge of their faithfulness. Paul was confident that they would persevere. Now, some have tried to argue that because Paul was writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, his confidence uh, is actually a promise. 
but there is a very serious problem with that kind of argument. Consider uh, that uh, Paul also expressed confidence that he would go through Spain at uh, Romans 15, 25. He said, whenever I go to Spain, for I hope to see you in passing and to be helped on my way there with you, uh, when I have first enjoyed your company for a while, uh, he continues that, but um, as best we can tell from the historical record, Paul never went to Spain. So as such, there's not really any reason to suppose that because Paul was confident of something, therefore that's an unconditional promise from God. Finally, let's, let's look at the most popular proof text for eternal security. Be 1 John 2.19, they went out from us because they were not really of us, for if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. Here, John is describing a particular historical event, uh, and it's a mistake to apply this specific reference to certain apostates as a general principle to all who have ever left the faith. Certainly, false conversions do take place, uh, and that could be what is described here, but you can't say because it was true here, it's therefore true every time, you know, apostasy happens. That would be to commit the fallacy of composition. Furthermore, it's not even certain that this is a description of false converts. Um, all that, you know, all that John affirms is that at the time that they left, they were not believers, but he doesn't actually ever say that they really, um, he you know, they could have been genuine believers before that point. So it doesn't, um, strictly speaking, even prove that these people in question had never been saved. Uh, but again, even if they had never been saved, it's just a mistake to apply that over broadly. So uh, having established that there are really no convincing proof texts for eternal security, let's examine the biblical evidence against eternal security. And before we begin, I need to address a common misconception regarding the doctrine of conditional security. Because it's often thought that Arminians believe that a person loses their salvation every single time that they sin. And maybe with Wesleyans and their emphasis on holiness, there may be some who hold that view. Uh, but for the most part, that would not be true, certainly not in the Reformed Arminian camp. While willful sin does distance a believer from God, only a willfully chosen rejection of the faith once placed in Christ can finally sever the Christian's relationship with God. So uh, let's look at some of the biblical evidence for this. Uh, let's start with the teachings of Christ. Uh, in John 15, 2 and 6, Jesus says that every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. Branches here correspond to individuals, and it's pretty difficult to deny that they have been saved, as they're explicitly said to be in Christ, right? And if any man be in Christ, we know he's a new creature. Old things are passed away, and all things are become new. So, uh, Moreover, this taking away would have to be a reference to loss of salvation because they're said to be cast away and to be burned, which seems to be an obvious reference to hell. Uh, now, some have tried to argue that abiding in Christ is merely a reference to backsliding rather than apostasy. Uh, but first of all, this does not account for Jesus saying that the person will be burned. And then second, consider uh, what John says you know, in 2 John 9. It says, whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. See, so those who don't abide, you know, they, they don't still belong to God, according to this verse. Consider this one as well, 1 John 2.24. As for you, let that abide in you, which you have heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, 
you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. See, so there's that conditional there. Uh, what you heard from the beginning, that has to abide in you in order for you to abide in Christ. Uh, so for John, not abiding in Christ, that's not, that's not backsliding. For him to not abide in Christ is to be totally alienated from God. Thus, we must conclude that when John 15 warns us against being cutting off and burned, Jesus is giving a warning to believers against being cut off and going to hell. So having established that Jesus did not accept the doctrine of eternal security, let's turn our attention to the writings of Paul. Ironically enough, although Romans 8 is often kind of thought to be one of those strongholds for proponents of eternal security, this chapter contains a warning that is difficult for believers in eternal security to get around. In Romans 8, 12-13, Paul said, So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, the warning is clear. If you live after the flesh, you will die. Sometimes it's argued that uh, Paul was simply saying that if you live after the flesh, then this is proof that you were never saved. But if that were the case, Paul should have said, if you live after the flesh, you were dead. But he doesn't. He says, you will die. And no matter how you cut it, in order to die, you had to be alive at one point. Moreover, Paul has just addressed the recipients of his warning as brethren. Now, surely he would not have said this if he had un or if he had the unregenerate in mind. So realizing the futility of that approach, uh, some eternal security proponents will try to argue that this is a reference to physical death. But first of all, that would happen anyway. Everyone will die physically, so th it, that wouldn't make sense. But more importantly, um, the context makes that interpretation impossible. Paul is like immediately before that, talking about spiritual life and spiritual death. So that's what Paul has in mind. And Paul is warning his readers that if they live after the flesh, they will die spiritually. That is, return to the spiritually dead state which they had been in before God had made them alive through regeneration. Romans 11, 17-23, Paul gets even more explicit. In context, Paul is comparing God's chosen people to an olive tree. He speaks of the Jews, who were God's chosen people up until this point, as being the natural branches that were broken off, and the Gentiles being grafted into the tree. He then warns the Gentiles about becoming prideful, for if they do, they will be cut off. Now, remember, <clears throat> it's unbelieving Israelites who have been cut off. So, to be cut off is to be counted among the unbelievers. Moreover, Paul directly connects the cutting off to one's lack of faith. Proponents of eternal security have typically tried to interpret this passage in one of two ways. They'll sometimes argue that branches correspond to nations rather than individuals. However, this won't work because Paul refers to some of the branches, plural, being broken off and that the natural branches, plural, uh, were not being spared. Uh, so these references make it impossible to read this breaking off as a reference to Israel corporately. Uh, some of the well, because he says some of the branches were broken off, and so the word some implies that others are not cut off. So, since only some branches were broken off, uh, the branches must correspond to individuals rather than to nations. Uh, and then there's, uh, well, then more importantly, I think it's important to note that the Gentiles are grafted in out from among the nations. That That's Paul's argument here on Romans 1-11. So, 
you know, trying to view this as national stuff is that, that doesn't fit Paul's theme through Romans 9 and 11 like at all. So the other way that it's tried to, you know, argue that this verse isn't teaching that you could lose your salvation is by reference to uh, a broken off branch being a false convert. But again, the context just doesn't sustain that reading. Paul says that the branches stand by faith and that this was the very reason that they'd been grafted in in the first place. So Paul is exhorting them, or Paul is not exhorting them rather to believe, but rather he's exhorting them to continue in the faith that they already possess. Here's another one. Uh, Colossians 1, 22-23. Paul writes, He has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. Now the word if here seems to give clear evidence that salvation can be lost. So there's that conditional element there. Final eschatological salvation is contingent upon one continuing in the faith. And I'll conclude this section by examining some of the warnings in the book of Hebrews. Uh, the first warning I will examine is found in Hebrews 6, 4-6. through 6. A verse reads, For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and tasted the heavenly gift and been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. This passage is easily the most controversial in the book of Hebrews, if not the entire New Testament. Uh, now, in order for this verse to give evidence against eternal security, we must establish, first, that it is indeed describing believers, and two, that falling away refers to a loss of salvation. Let's look at that first question. Uh, are believers in view? Well, Hebrews 6, 4-6 appears within the middle of a discussion that began in Hebrews 5.11. And the purpose of this section <clears throat> is to exhort the readers to go on to maturity, right? In 6.1, the author says, Therefore, leaving the elementary teachings about the Christ, let us press on to maturity. Now, that's important because it forms the context for the warning. Since obviously unbelievers are not being exhorted to go on to maturity, it is evident that the warning appears within a section that is addressed to genuine believers. The author then goes on to say in 6.3 that they will go on to maturity if God permits. Now, an interesting question arises here. Why wouldn't God permit a genuine believer to go on to maturity? Well, the warning in verses 4-6 through six answers this question. At this point, some Calvinists will try to sidestep the issue altogether by saying, oh, well, there were probably unbelievers and pretenders that may have been in the church. And of course, that's quite true. There probably were some false converts within the church. But that doesn't begin to touch the Arminian argument. Uh, Arminians have always maintained that the specific descriptive terms used in 6, 4 through 6 can only be properly applied to genuine believers. A general reference to the fact that there may have been unbelievers within the congregation does not explain how unbelievers can properly be said to have been enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, become partakers with the Holy Spirit, and so on. Any serious interpretation of this passage, which wishes to maintain that unbelievers are uh, in view here, has to really grapple with those terms. So let's take a closer look at those descriptions and see if they could reasonably be applied to unbelievers. First, they're said to be enlightened. Now, if the meaning of a word is ever unclear, we can always 
you know, see how the author uses that word elsewhere, and it's probable that he'll use it in the same way. Unfortunately, the author uses the same word again in 1032, Hebrews 1032. And here he writes, But remember the former days when, after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of suffering, partly by being made a public spectacle through the reproachments and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. The enlightenment here seems to describe a conversion. Remember that the author is addressing persecuted Christians throughout Hebrews, uh, and he's addressing the recipients of that statement as brethren up in 1019. Uh, so in this passage, he directly connects their suffering to this enlightenment. Since the persecution was taking place as a result of their faith in Christ, it seems that enlightenment is a synonym for salvation here. Now, uh, it has been suggested that maybe, you know, enlightened could simply be a reference to being made aware of the gospel. After all, John 1, 9 uh, does say that Jesus is the true light who enlightens everyone. So based on John 1, 9, could be, uh, you know, it could be a reference to an intellectual understanding. Based on Hebrews 10, 32, it could refer to salvation. Uh, in their excellent introduction to biblical interpretation, uh, Klein, Blomberg, and Hubbard remind us, that word uses closer to the passage under study have greater weight than word uses at the periphery. So how the author uses the word in the same book has more relevance than how the author uses the same words in other books. From there, we would consider how the author in the, in the same testament uses the words. Thus, exegetically speaking, it is more likely that this is a reference to salvation in Hebrews 6. Second, these people are said to have tasted the heavenly gift. Now, first we should ask what the heavenly gift refers to, and it would seem reasonable to consider the heavenly gift as equivalent to the gift of God, which is repeatedly identified as salvation throughout Scripture. It's difficult to see what else could rightly be called the gift of God. Sometimes believers uh, in eternal security will try to suggest that the word tasted here just means they kind of nibbled at it or sampled it, but this seems unlikely. Uh, in view of how the same word is used in Hebrews 2.9. Remember that here he said that Christ would taste death for all men. Obviously, Jesus did not kind of sample or nibble at death. Christ fully experienced death. Uh, and as Leroy Fourline says, it is my position that the word taste is one of the strongest words that could have been used uh, in tasting. There's always a consciousness of the presence of that which has been tasted. Thus, we should understand the phrase, tasted the heavenly gift, as saying, fully experienced the salvation of God. Third, these people are described as having been made partakers with the Holy Spirit. This is perhaps the most difficult uh, description for those who hold to eternal security to get around. Uh, some have tried to say that that merely means that the apostates have been influenced by the Holy Spirit. But that's not a possible meaning for the word. The word translated as partakers is mitokos, and it means to be a participant, an associate, or a partner. All of these terms require a real connection with the Holy Spirit here. This conclusion is further strengthened by an examination of how the word partaker is used throughout Hebrews. Not only does the term always denote a full participation, but it is also used exclusively of believers. Uh, and, you know, the references on that would be uh, Hebrews 3.1, uh, Hebrews 3.14, and uh, I had one more on here. Oh, yeah, and then Hebrews 12.7-8. Uh, and that last one is particularly striking because uh, being a partaker uh, or a disciple 
or sorry, being a partaker of discipline is actually said to be the distinguishing characteristic of God's children. And if all that wasn't enough, the fact that unbelievers are actually, you know, said to not be able to partake of the Holy Spirit, I think is the final nail in the coffin of anyone trying to see unbelievers uh, as being, you know, the recipients of this warning here. Right, uh, Romans 8, 9, Paul says, However, you are in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Uh, John 14, 17 is even more explicit. That is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive. So these verses make it impossible to regard a partaker with the Holy Spirit as a saved person. Unbelievers cannot receive the Holy Spirit nor can he dwell in them. Indeed, the passage indicates that the unbeliever is totally alien from the Holy Spirit. Uh, I think it's also said that the apostate, well, yeah, I mean, here it says that the apostate can't be brought back to repentance. Uh, and that's significant because repentance is a condition for salvation, right? Jesus said, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So since repentance is what they cannot be brought back to, it would seem that this is also what they fell away from. Moreover, the author says that they can't be brought back to repentance again. The presence of the word again means that this is something that you know they had already done previously. Uh, you can't repent again if you haven't already done it once. Further evidence that this is a falling away from salvation is seen in the reason the author gives for the impossibility of their restoration. He writes, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. Now, what is meant by crucifying the Son of God to oneself? It seems that to crucify uh, something to yourself in, is a New Testament idiom that you know refers to totally rejecting something. Consider Paul's words in Galatians 6.14, But may it never be that I would boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. Here Paul's reference to crucifying the world to himself obviously means total alienation. Thus it would be entirely reasonable to see the reference to crucifying Christ to oneself in 6.6 as a reference to alienating oneself from God. Moreover, notice that the author says that they are crucifying Christ to themselves again. The word again suggests that this had already happened once. This further supports my thesis that these people had already been saved, since if they uh, had never been saved to begin with, then they would, you know, have always been alienated from Christ, and thus the presence of the word again would be misleading. Lastly, the final end of these apostates is to be burned, according to Hebrews 6.8. This seems to be an obvious reference to hell. And since I've already established that these apostates were saved at one time, for their final end to be hell would uh, require that falling away is a reference to losing one's salvation. So, uh, one other issue I think we should bring up here, I think, is uh, this issue of whether or not an apostate can come back. So, Reformed Arminians disagree with the Westlands that uh, an apostate could come back or be saved again. Hebrews 6.6 6 clearly says that it's impossible for those who fall away to ever repent again. The word translated as impossible is among the very strongest words that the author of Hebrews could have used here. It's an unqualified impossibility. So no hope is extended here of a possible future restoration. This is the same word used a few verses later in Hebrews 6.18 where it says it's impossible for God to lie. Uh, I think it's evident that uh, 
God is truly never going to lie, that's a real impossibility. But if that's the case, for the sake of consistency, we have to acknowledge that the impossibility of repentance in 6.6 is also a real impossibility. So, you know, there you have a basic outline of Reformed Arminianism in contrast to Calvinism and Wesleyan Arminianism. Certainly much, much more could be said, but hopefully this has shown you uh, something of what we believe, how we read the scripture, and uh, why we believe as we do.